Amen. Well, thanks again for uh, being here. Uh, yeah, it is, uh, it is hot in here, so there is uh, some cold water uh, over here and hot coffee, if that's your thing. I want to just sweat it out. Um, so uh, feel free to, to grab that if, if you need to um, uh, just cool off and, and take a little break. Don't, don't hesitate to, uh, to do that. Uh, thanks for being here. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm a pastor here at Hope Lower Town and uh, glad to be able to uh, start a new new series. I don't have my clicker. Um, we just finished uh, 21 weeks of preaching through First uh, Peter, and so uh, now we are starting a new a new series of uh, just hey, uh, I have a question. And so this was uh, questions that were fielded from uh, the congregation, and, and we had a lot. And then we just kind of narrowed them down from downtown uh, and here, and just kind of narrowed down what what are what are the people asking right now. And and so we tried to narrow down to what uh, would be the biggest topics that were asked, and, and, um, and so we want to be able to answer those questions as best we can. And so we're going to do this for, I believe, 10 weeks, uh, just over the summer, and then in the fall, we're going to be starting a, a Nehemiah uh, series, preaching the book of Nehemiah, which might be the first time in church history that we're going to preach the Nehemiah without doing like a building campaign, because um, normally that's what's associated with it, you know, like, hey, we need more money, um, that's not what we're going to be doing, we're just going to talk about Nehemiah. Um, I mean, unless something comes up, then, then maybe I'll put my foot in my mouth. But anyways, glad you're here. So this is, hey, I have a question. I remember when I was in junior high, uh, the church I went to, my youth pastor kind of did this thing. And, and I was a smart aleck. And I remember writing, like, who's the greatest football team, you know, whatever, and submitted that. And he got, like, really mad at me. And I was like, man, come on, like, give me, give me a break. Like, come on, can you just laugh a little bit? Um, we actually didn't get any of those. Uh, we, they were all actually very serious questions that, we, that were submitted. Um, so if you, if you did submit one, thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to jump into this. So uh, a little bit of a, a, a prerequisite or a precursor or whatever is this, that big, big questions require big answers. And so sometimes people ask a, a, what seems like a simple yes or no question, and it's just not that way. Um, it's simply not just yes or no. We can give you a yes or no, but there's actually reason behind maybe that yes or no or the simple uh, sound bite or or tweet answer that I could give you. Um, I've actually never tweeted in my life. Can you believe that? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that. Um, so the, what the content that we're looking at tonight? The question that was asked is: Is the Bible a reliable guide for my life? All right. That that's the question. But there are are questions beneath that question. And so the, the simple answer that you would hope that a pastor, right, anybody who would say, yeah, I, I read the Bible, I follow the Bible, the answer would be yes. Um, but it's not that simple, right? And I, and I know that they're not asking that simple of a question when they ask that question. Um, and there were multiple layers to that question that were submitted and, and different angles of that. And this is kind of what we, what we came up with. So, um, and again, this is a big question. Um, you know that I teach systematic theology uh, downtown, and I literally spend three weeks uh, covering seven chapters on this question. All right, so, so I'm taking seven and a half hours of lecture, and I'm jamming that down in about 30 minutes. All right, there's, a, there's a, just a, there's a lot here. Uh, and at the same time, uh, on the handout, if you got one, I have just a list of further resources, if that's something that you are interested in, of other books uh, that you could check out that might be one. One that I would love to highlight that's on that list is Vishal Mangawati. Uh, he's... Uh, uh, Indian that wrote a book called The Book That Made Your World, and just looking at our Western culture and how this, the Bible shaped more than we can even begin to imagine in our society. Uh, it's a fantastic, I did a lecture on that on campus, I don't know, a couple months ago. Uh, that might be online too, I don't know, but 
there's a lot on this topic. Um, and so it's going to be a lot, of, a lot of data downloading, right? Just, just regurgitating information. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then we're going to get to Jesus because that's what I get paid to do. Um, so is the Bible a reliable guide for my life? And the focus passage is going to be 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And again, that's just, we're just going to briefly touch on that. Uh, there are going to be some other verses, though, as well that will pop up that we're going to jump into this. So I just briefly want to go over these um, kind of five questions, if you will, behind the question. All right, so, so the big question, the overarching question, is the Bible a reliable guide for my life? And the five questions that we have are, where did our Bible come from? Right, where did these 66 books that we would call our Bible or our scriptures or the canon, where, where in the world did that come from? Second question is, is it accurate? I mean, is there like some old ancient text that they're just finding little bits and pieces of? How do we know that what we have and what we hold and what are in every single pew in this church, how do we know that's accurate? Um, the third aspect behind it, what does the Bible claim about itself? And that's what we'll look at some more of the scripture of just self-attesting, self-claiming self that this is really what God is saying, uh, past, present, and future. And then four, is it true? Um, and this is a, a huge controversy that's even going on today. Is the Bible inerrant? Is the Bible infallible? Uh, and the difference between those two uh, different terminologies, and we'll, we'll take a, a real quick brief snippet of what that means and what it doesn't mean. And then finally, how practically can the Bible change my life, right? What are, what are some things that I can do? What are some steps that, that this book, that I can actually read it and change my life? And not just moralistically change, right? It's not just course correcting of like behavior modification of, okay, it says don't do that, so therefore I won't do that and change my life, but no really internally heart changing my life. Um, how does the Bible do that? And hopefully want to want to look at that. So, First, first question, where did our Bible come from? Well, it starts, and if we go back, and again, we spent, I don't forget how many weeks, 50-some weeks in the book of Exodus and looking at the Ten Commandments and then when they were written, that the, it, the Old Testament starts being written literally by God's finger, that he starts writing the Ten Commandments on, on a tablet, and then later on, Moses would then say, with these two tablets, I'm going to incorporate what God gave me, physically written on these tablets, into these books of the first five books of the Pentateuch, of the Bible, and that's where it starts. But we can see that there's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written by approximately 40 authors. And just, I, I think sometimes this is just data. It's like, oh, that's, in, that's interesting information. The storyline of the Bible that is one story proclaiming the goodness of God the Father for his love for you through Jesus Christ. You take, you take this seamless, beautiful story, and you say it was written by 40 authors over a period of 1,600 years. Right? That, like that, to me, is just mind-blowing. That we look at this beautiful story that not just one person could have just made up, and I don't think 40 people could have just made up. Something divine about this. With the diversity of authors, kings, fishermen, tax collectors, tent makers, prophets, all these different individuals who attributed to the scriptures. Um, just mentioned it's written over a period of 1,600 years. And it's the best-selling book and most read of all time. So the, the Old Testament is actually pretty simple to say, where did we get our Old Testament scriptures? Because that is the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's been around for a very, very long time. Uh, they stopped writing, uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews stopped writing in that Bible around 450 uh, B.C. 
And so there's 400 years plus of silence. Nobody wrote anything. There, there were no prophets. There was nobody even saying or trying to say, hey, I wrote this thing and I think it should be added to our, 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 our Hebrew scripture. No, it never happened. Now, there are passages and, and books of the Bible in between the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. It's called, um, well, there are books, the apocryphal books, but there are history books, mainly the books of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, some really good history, but clearly not in line with Scripture. And so we have to look at where did these, so, so the Hebrew text is a little bit easier to say, this is, this is part of our Bible. It's the same storyline, the same story and the prophets about prophesying about Jesus. It's the same Jesus that we meet in the New Testament. The New Testament's where it gets a little difficult. And some of you may have heard this, that when Emperor Constantine was the emperor in the, in the early 300s, uh, that he uh, had this vision, which he claimed he did. He had this vision, and he was going to uh, go to war with the cross, okay, which, which I have a hard time believing that. Um, uh, but either way, he makes Christianity legal. Uh, and then he says, for the first time, and then he says, hey, we need uh, a Bible, right? And so, so some history books will say Constantine put together uh, our canon, our Bible. And that's just false. It's, it's just not accurate to what was really happening. What was going on was there were multiple churches all throughout the world and all throughout the region. If you can think of like um, two big regions, they were overseen by, for lack of a better term, a bishop. And same for this southern region, kind of in, in Africa, northern Africa area. And they had all these books that all these local churches were reading through in the New Testament, written by the apostles and, and other individuals and, and the gospels. And, and, and those churches said, hey, why don't we see if we're reading the same books? And they do. They meet up and they exchange scrolls. And they're like, wow, look at that. It's the same exact thing. And then that's where Constantine just was able to put his thumb of approval thumb of approval? That's not a thing. Stamp of approval? Um, on, on the Bible of saying, this is what we're going to use. And, and, and but that, nothing changed. Constantine didn't change anything. He didn't, he didn't approve anything. He didn't give any authority to the Bible. It already had its authority. It was already well established in the region at that time. And so that's a little bit of where it came from. Uh, one, this is, this is awesome. Best-selling book and most, most read. It's just really interesting. So these are the top 10 most read books in the world. I know you probably can't read it, so let me just give you the, the stats here. The second book on that list, so the really tall, skinny black book there is the Holy Bible. The next one uh, are quotations from Mao Zedong, all right? That's the second most uh, sold book, not just printed, because a lot of these books had a lot printed, but they were never sold, okay? So these are actually sold um, and so the numbers are this, that the quotes from Mao Zedong are 820 million copies sold. Um, the next, a third place is Harry Potter, which is just cracks me up. 400 million copies of Harry Potter have been sold. Okay, the, the Holy Bible on that is 3,900 million, all right, which I literally had to Google what is that number even mean, right? Um, and it's 3,900,000 000. since 1970. Okay? In the last 50 years, that's the data. But it's, it's, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> All right? It's the, by far the most selling book, most read book ever in the history of humanity and will ever be uh, to, to, to be that, that number of 3,900,000. Um, I do want, there's a, there's a lot more that could be said there. Again, there's further resources on there if you want to say, man, I, I would like to know more about this whole Constantine thing. Um, feel free to look at those resources. Um, you should be able to find a lot more information about that or, or talk to me. I'd love to talk more about that. Um, second point, is it accurate? 
this is, when I, when I teach this class, uh, this, this point in systematic, um, this is one of my favorite points. Because this isn't, um, I think, like, the, like what we're going to look at, what does the Bible say about itself? And some people say, well, that's a circular argument, right? If I stand up here and say, I'm God, and you go, well, why do you, well, how? Why would you say it? Well, because I just said I was, that, therefore I'm God. So some people will say, well, if the Bible says the scripture, it's circular. Well, every argument's kind of circular when you get back to it, but we're not going to get into all that, okay? But is it accurate? And I love, I love this, just the raw data of materials that we physically have when it comes to the scripture, um, this just, it blows my mind. And, and if, and you can say, man, this is just chance. Uh, there's, how would we have this much material? But it's not just, we have a lot of material. It's how did we get that material? Because there was no printing press. It simply took an individual to sit there and copy meticulously the word of God over and over and over without any mistakes, which we're going we're gonna to look at this, okay? So this is, I know it's really difficult to read. I can't see it in the back. But there's all these different books that we would say that were written around the time, especially of our New Testament. And to look at these books that were written and people who wrote uh, these, these books, so there's uh, um, a lot of, you know, Plato, Pliny, the elder, if you've heard of him, Caesar, Aristotle. Um, so like Aristotle, for example, was written 384 BC. Um, the earliest copy is 1100 AD. All right, so there's a span of 1,400 years from all the stuff that we know that Aristotle wrote, which you probably were forced to study in school. It was 1,400 years difference between his copy that he actually wrote and what we have, okay? Uh, Homer is, is uh, the most, and I'll have the New Testament up in a second. So, and this is just the Iliad, right? You had to force to read the Iliad when you were in, in uh, yeah, right, everyone does, right? Stupid. Um, it was written uh, 900 B.C. The earliest copy is 400 B.C. Okay, we're doing a little better. So there's only a 500-year span, which is great, right? Numbers of copies, there's 643 copies that we have of Iliad. All right, and they can take those copies, they can overlay them, they can read them, they can look at them and meticulously look and see how accurate is it. And, and they're actually very accurate. They're 95% accuracy um, between all these different Copies. Okay, now we get to the New Testament. The New Testament was written in 50 to 100 AD. Earliest copy manuscript is 130 AD. Okay, so less than 100 years is the span between, because we don't have any original manuscripts. That's going to come back up in a little minute. We, don't, we have no original manuscripts, which, side note, thank God, right? I mean, just, I, I mean, I would struggle. I mean, what, I mean if there was like, well, but Paul, Paul touched that piece of paper. Right? I mean, I would be like, can I, can I, touch, can I touch it? Right? Like, like people would just worship this stupid piece of paper. It's, so I'm, I'm thankful in God's wisdom that he's like, yeah, we're, we're just going to get rid of these, uh, but I'm going to give them enough proof. And here's the proof. That there are over 5,600 copies plus. And, and every year I teach this class, I have to relook at this number because it, it jumps by hundreds every time I teach this class of just how many copies and fragments that we have of the New Testament. And then the accuracy is 99.5%. And by the accuracy, this is simply someone uh, switched two, two letters, right? It happens, I do it all the time, right? I'm typing my name and I actually type brain, you know, instead of Brian. It happens, right? I remember in junior high, I actually did that in permanent marker on, my, on like a new basketball I got for Christmas. You know, brain, like, no, what? Um, it happens, okay? And so this is, the accuracy here is simply 
It's, this isn't a word change or, or a theology that changes or a doctrine that none of that happens ever. Um, and it's, it's a really, really interesting, really cool thing. Um, when it comes to the Old Testament, which is really fun, uh, we actually, up until recently, up until the 70s, our, our earliest manuscript was a stretch of about a thousand years. We didn't, we didn't have anything really close. Um, and so there was this kid who was out, he was a shepherd, and he was bored, and he starts throwing some rocks, and he throws a rock up into this cave, and he hears something break in it. And so he's like, wow, that's weird. So he crawls up there, and, and he finds all these old manuscripts, all these old scrolls. Um, he gets cold. He starts burning a fire with them, right, um, he, to keep himself warm. And, and these are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this rewinds the clock now to where we're within a couple hundred years of when the original manuscript. It was, I mean, it's mind-blowing. And then recently, this is something that happened just this year, uh, they discovered a lot of scrolls back in the 70s as well um, from Mount Vesuvius when it blew up, right? Uh, the old, old volcano in, in the 79 AD-ish time. This huge volcano explodes and destroys a bunch of stuff. Well, they found these old manuscripts that were just charred and burnt and disintegrating. And they're like, don't touch it, right? Let's let our grandkids figure out how to read this. And they did, right? So, so now they can do these scans, these MRIs on this little piece of paper, and they can take it. And so just this year found like eight chapters of Leviticus. And it's by far, again, the earliest copy of Leviticus that we have. And they go and they compare it to what we do have. Guess what? It's exactly the same book. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's staggering to me. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. Even the archaeology, um, some things that are written in scripture. Uh, the, the one really cool one was about the, uh, the Ammonites. And this was something back in the 70s that uh, society, the world was like, the, the Bible's a joke. There are no, there is no cultural of the, of the Ammonites, even though they're major players in the Old Testament. And I was like, this, this isn't a thing. And then someone's digging around and, and they find something written on the wall. And sure enough, oh, this is the Amorites uh, or the Ammonites. Like, like that's right. And they have, now, now they discovered all this stuff. And I guess they were like, ah, I guess the Bible is right. And like, yeah, that's because it is right. And so, so it's, it, there's all this data, right? And, and I clearly get excited about it. And, I, and I'm not really that big of a nerd, but it clearly I am when it comes to this. Because my faith is, isn't staked on these numbers, it's not, but to me, it's tangible proof that I can look and see that God has clearly protected his, his scriptures. One, uh, Frederick, Sir Frederick George Kenyon, director of the head librarian of the British Museum, I'm assuming he's dead, I don't, it looks like an older picture, uh, appointed president of the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, all right? says this, the New Testament text is far better attested than any of the other work in ancient literature. Its problems and difficulties arise not from the deficiency of evidence, but from an excess of it, right? They find something, and now they got to do all the work of comparing this new one with all the old ones. In the case of no work of Greek or Latin literature, do we possess manuscripts so plentiful in number or so near the date of composition? That's that. I could talk more about that. We're not going to. What does the Bible claim about itself? And this is where we're going to read some, some scripture. Uh, the verse that uh, we read out loud, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, says this. All scripture, all of it, is God-breathed. It's, it's inspired by God. All right? It's not saying that he's writing it down, he dictated it, or he's, the, the Holy Spirit is like whispering in someone's ear what to write. But this scripture, the Bible that we read, the words that are on the screen, the words that are on your iPad or iPhone or, or whatever, it's inspired by God. 
All of it. And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How are we equipped for every good work? From all scripture. That's how we do this. To read all of the Bible and all of it that we can't just pick and choose and say, ah, man, this part is really difficult. It's really hard to understand. Therefore, I don't want to, I want to be done with that. Hopefully in these next nine weeks, we'll answer some of those difficult questions. But the self-attestment is that God's inspiration of human authors, that God speaks, he, he gives them the inspiration, and they write. That all scripture is God-breathed, is, is inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First Peter, we just got done studying this. Well, I guess this would have been like 20 weeks ago that we were in this passage, but First Peter 1, 19 through 21, we also have this prophetic message as something completely reliable. And here he's talking about the Old Testament. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light in shining in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation of things. They weren't just, hey, you know what, maybe I'm just going to just pen something that some Messiah is going to uh, be born by a virgin. That sounds kind of cool. That, no, like they, they didn't make this stuff up. Verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration. Psalm 19. These are truthful, life-giving, and reflects God and his ways to us. This is one of my favorite psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, listen to this, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge, and yet they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard for them, yet their voice goes out to all the earth, their, wor their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart, and the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to their eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold. Right? The, the scripture, the words of God are more precious than gold, much more pure than gold. They are sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb, and by them your servant is warned in keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? That's us. Who, who, human being, can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, right? Cho choosing to sin. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And may these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. It's effective and powerful. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed to the sower and bread for the eater, 
So is my word that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will not return void. But God will accomplish what I desire to achieve and the purpose for which I sent it. This is, this is right here. This verse, verse 11, is why every week we put up scripture up on the screen and we, and we read it. Because I can say a whole lot of things and I can tell some really cool illustrations and some funny jokes. What, what scripture teaches, it's not going to return void. So worst case scenario, I want to always get scripture in front of your eyes and on your ears and in your heart because it won't return back to God empty. It's going to, do a, it's going to accomplish the purpose which God has sent it. Jesus is source of truth and life. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, so they may truly be sanctified. And finally, God's word is for us to be followed. James 1, 22-25, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, the law that gives freedom, and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now finally, is it true? Inerrancy versus infallibility. And there's a lot that could be said here. Inerrancy in our elder statement of faith, in order to be an elder at Hope Community Church, um, what we say, the written, what's written down in our, in our elder statement of faith, is that we believe that the scripture is without error in any of the original manuscripts. When you're like, well, wait, didn't you just say there are no original manuscripts? Yeah, I did, right? But the, the thing is, in that, I, what I believe is the Bible that we have today is exactly what God intended us to have. And so there are going to be some, some errors in the sense of a word typo or a run-on sentence or, a, or a, uh, even within Old Testament Hebrew language, they didn't have periods. And it was the same thing with Greek. It just wasn't, it's not how things language worked. And so within translation, are there errors? Yes. But does it change how I view scripture when I view uh, things like my salvation and all those things? Now, infallibility was a way to kind of soften inerrancy. Uh, and this was back in the 70s, I believe, um, uh, coming out of um, a college. It wasn't Wheaton, Fuller, Fuller Seminary. But this happened where these individuals and, and some Fuller, oh, he, he, did you Google it? Uh, you just know. Oh, okay. Uh, Fuller Seminary in the sense of where this, this idea came that we would say, hey, this isn't just going to be everything's, it, it's, and there's no errors in the Bible, um, but only the things that are talking about faith and practice. All right, so, so, so commands in my life or, or what, it, what it means to be a Christian and, and have faith, so faith and practice. But the problem with this is where do you stop, where do you draw that line? Because there are things written in the Old Testament that should affect how I live now because it points to Jesus. And to say, well, that's just metaphor or that's just allegory, which those things for sure are in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about some of those in a couple of weeks. But look at these things to say, okay, the inerrancy of Scripture that it is true, that I can look at these words and I can see that they are true and then over history, over thousands of years, that nothing's changed in these texts. 
And we just keep finding more and more proof of that. What inerrancy does not mean. The Bible was simply dictated by God to us. It's not what it means. It's not what inerrancy means. It means that there's these individuals that were inspired by God. Their own personalities come out in the scripture. Uh, their, their understanding of, of what God was teaching, of what Jesus was teaching, uh, their, their own language and how that was taught and their own personal experiences, that comes out. And God didn't dictate that to them. Uh, what it does not mean is that we can give scientific precision to recorded history, okay? So scientific precision of what we understand today to, re- to recorded history pre-2nd century AD and, and, and before then. We're going to be looking at this in a couple of weeks when we look at the creation account of looking at, okay, when they, when they wrote, let there be light, okay, 21st century says photons, right? Light, are they thinking waves? Are they thinking matter? What do they think? No, no, that's not what they're thinking about. All right, so we can't just force what we understand with modern science, that kind of thing, into what they wrote and what they understood. And it doesn't mean there's an error there. How about contradictions and accounts that are in error? Are these errors? Um, a rooster crowing once in Matthew, uh, at, and when Peter denies Jesus and he hears a rooster crow, and Luke and John say, here's a rooster crow. Well, Mark says the rooster crowed twice. Boom, there it is. There's an error. Therefore, the whole thing falls apart. No, that's not how that works. Um, when I teach this class, I always bring up uh, something that we all uh, remember vividly. And so I bring up uh, 9-11, and I just say, okay, where, where were you on 9-11? Where were you? What time was it? What do you remember? I mean, what... And the memories come flooding back, and you can remember and see and smell things be like you were there yesterday, uh, if, you're old, if you're old enough to remember. I know some of you aren't. Um, but, but we do this, right? And, and there's people, and then you can ask the question, okay, how long in between the first plane and the second plane hitting the towers, how long was it? Oh, man, well, it was te- someone might nail the time, and someone's like, I think it was like an hour. It's like, no, 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 right? So it's, does that make it error? No, that doesn't mean what that, that's not what that means. Just a different vantage point of a similar story. And then finally, that poetry and prophecy must be taken literally. Um, that's, that's false. All right, that we can't look at the Proverbs and say, this is what we need to do, and this is exactly how this needs to do. And we read prophecy or apocalyptic language like the book of Revelation or a lot of other books in the Old Testament. That are, is this literal how we should read this black and white? And, and, I, and I would say no. And it doesn't, does that mean there's error? No, it should be taken literally as poetry, right? That, that's how it is, right? When I, when I, right, in high school or, you know, college, writing poems to my wife, man, your eyes are as blue as the ocean. I don't think, I don't think I've ever said that to whoever in my life, um, right? But we've heard things like that. And it's like, well, the ocean, there's some pretty nasty, dark places of the ocean. So is that really a compliment? Or is, so am I an error saying your eyes are like the ocean? No, it's poetry, all right? And we should, it should be taken as, as such. And then finally, how practically can the Bible change my life? I remember my dad um, was a pastor, and, and, um, and we, uh, I still have his Bibles, and I, I should have brought it just to, to prove it. Um, but he would write in his Bible, and every time he would, and when he would give us a Bible or anything, he would always write the same thing in the front of it. And it was, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. I know it's really cliche, but it's very, very true. At the times when I'm in the word of God and I'm meditating on God's word and and I'm praying and I'm reflecting on what God has said to say, yes. Right, When when you're near, temptation seems so far away that he can help us fight those things 
that it can practically change our lives. I remember Psalm 119, verse 9. We didn't read this verse when I was reading through, uh, oh, no, it was just Psalm 19. Sorry, this is Psalm 119. It says this, how can a young person stay on the path to purity? It says, by living according to your word. It was one of the first verses I memorized, except it was the King James. And it was, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. I don't even know what that means, right? But this, this I get, right? How can a young person stay on the path to purity? By living according to your word. But this, these, are, these are practical things that we can get in the word and we can meditate on it. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I hope that we do this, right? And, and there's, no, there's no guilt, there's no shame. But to meditate on God's word, and this is what could take minutes, you could spend more time, uh, and, I, and I always get really convicted when I read about like Martin Luther, when he's like, man, I had a crazy day, so I woke up two hours extra early to spend uh, in prayer and reading God's word. And it's like, yeah, if I have a busy day, like I, sk I skip that part, you know what I'm saying? So, but should I feel guilty? Is, is there something about me reading my Bible that God will love me more? No, but I will love him more. And that's the practicality of it that I can read these scriptures, that I can change my thinking, I can change my actual heart. And so my encouragement to you would be to get, get in the word, meditate on it, memorize it. Not in the King James, because nobody knows what that's talking about. Unless you're like me, and that's all you know. So, in closing, where are you at? Where are you when it comes to God's word? Where, where, are, where are you? Do you look at this as reliable? Do you look at this as God's inspired, inerrant word that he, the words that I read on my pages in an English translation are exactly what he wants me to be reading for my life right now. That I can believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That I can read these words and I can believe when I read in Genesis 3.15 all the way back then and he makes a promise to Adam and Eve, that they're a descendant of them would crush the head of the serpent. I can, I can believe that that is trustworthy and true, that I can flip over to Genesis 15, 17, and I can read the promise and the covenant that Yahweh makes with Abraham and stakes his own deity on that this will come true. And us being descendants and the seed of Abraham, if we're in Christ, it's true that these promises will come true, that I can read Isaiah 61 about what the Messiah is going to be like, that he's going to preach good news to the poor, he's going to bind up the broken heart, and he's going to give freedom to the captives, and he's going to release from darkness the prisoners, and I can read that and say, this is true. And then I can fast forward to Luke, and I can see Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah, standing in a synagogue and reading that same page and saying, thus this prophecy has been fulfilled in my presence. I've done, I'm here, I'm this, and I can read that and I can say it's true. I can read about him being betrayed by his best friends and one of them with a kiss and it's true. And you can feel the guilt and the shame that would come over Jesus in these moments and it's true. That I can read about his horrific death and crucifixion on the cross for my sins. That the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus instead of me because of his love for me. And that he died. And he was taken off that cross. And he was buried in a tomb. He was dead. That was true. And then three days later, he rose from the dead victoriously. And he won victory over death. And I can read that and I can say, it's true. And he did it for me and he did it for you. And then I can finally end it and say, someday he's going to come back and he's going to make everything new. 
It's true. And he can stand there and he can establish this new sacrificial meal according to his new covenant in his body and in his blood and say, as long as you take these elements, you do this in remembrance of what I have done for you, my bride. And we can look at the juice that represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you and for me, and it's true. And we can look at the bread, which represents the broken body of Christ, and say it's true. Even the gluten-free stuff. It's true. It's real. It's good. And he did it for you, and he did it for me and my sins. And so we're going to do it like we do every week here. We're going to have communion, and all I would ask is, are you a follower of Jesus? Would you say, I can look at the scripture, man, I don't understand everything into it, and I'm not even going to begin to try. It's, a, it's possible. But I do know these things that are simple, and the gospel is that Jesus died for my sins. That's true. And Jesus, I want to remember what you did, that I've bowed my knee to you. I follow you. So you don't have to be a member of this church or any church, but we would love for you to partake of these elements that represent the sacrificial meal that Jesus instituted in his body and his blood thousands of years ago. As we read that story, it's true, and remembering him now is true. It's just as real today as it was for him thousands of years ago. Will you bow with me as we pray, and as we sing, lift up our voices to our Heavenly Father? Will you pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you for what has happened over thousands of years to get us to this point, even in, in this space, in this church, and look at this huge stained glass window in the back, and the thing that is at the very top is the Bible that it has been for thousands of years, our rule, our standard, our guide for our lives. And it's not just about modifying our behavior, about being a good person or, or loving our neighbors. It's not just about that. It's about loving you and your son and being empowered by your spirit to fight sin and to kill sin and to do it together in community and not on our own. So God, I pray as we lift up our voices because we're, we're not like the trees and, and, and the, the world that we read in Psalm 19. We physically have voices that can proclaim your goodness and your glory that you are worthy of. So as we sing and as we pray, as we reflect, as we confess our sins, as we partake of these elements, God, I pray that you would have the honor and only you would receive the glory. We thank you for your word and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.